I don't know what our total incline was on that mountain in the Pasayan wilderness, but this was a really fucking hard day. But it was all worth it. Here we go. The beauty I am witnessing is unreal. A greenish-blue lake to my right is puddled in the middle of a tall, rocky peak, accented with spiky trees and tiny fields of snow. To my left, the bright white moon glistens honestly against the pale blue sky as it modestly floats high above the other mountain peaks. I can no longer see the sun, but she isn't through saying her goodbyes to this part of the earth just yet. Everything has a unique, natural, and untouched charm. The bugs sing along to the flowing waters and the trees remain still listening as carefully as they can to what Mother Nature has to say. And yet, this planet is only my temporary home. We join you. Make no mistake. The maker and the makers of propaganda do not exist in a vacuum. The evil of the world needs you as much as you need the glory of the world. Your heart and your home are the workplace of magic or terror. We are living through a history undecided, as a confused collective, sometimes callous, periodically monstrous, instantly afraid, and immediately threatened. We hold the fate of each precious element within our heads. We have inadvertently enlisted in the cybernetic whole, human and mechanism and the unknown. Lest we be consumed by our own theories, we enlist as our own the words and feelings that write the lines of our forward path, the direction of which can only be decided by the way we choose to live and think and speak. The binary language of the computer, on, off, positive, negative, yes or no, requires the participation of the unknown the element of orientation, the human element, the sapien-sapien vantage web of days passing through us, setting the parameters of our being. We are made, and we make. We are awoken, and we wake. The Earth Hotel sprawls across the presence of night, within the shadow of our own perception. The dream which threatens to destabilize our reality finds form in faces staring with subconscious eyes back at us, through our inner projection. Stalking the endless modal hallways is our inner monster, living within our hearts, waiting for the climate of Hunter to spawn out cyclones of confusion and manipulation. Within these walls, there is a resistance to evil. The propaganda machine, the word horde, the tool of our most modern culture has been seized by this resistance. This is the mouthpiece of that machine among the organisms and I am but the editor, the operator, the all-too-far understander of this particular wing of our night watch. Pour out your words into this yellow sand and take up hands. Endure when you have, and kiss the wild wave's whist. Feet be fearless here and there, and, sweet friends, the burden bear. Welcome again. This is the Earth Hotel, and I am Jackie, and you are graciously rejoining for a conversation with Montevallo's own Calliope Pettis 
a songstress and conduit of compassion whom I've known for several years. As with most episodes in this particular format, which is drawing to a close next week with episode 50, the contents herein are arranged around our guest, who you heard reading her experience in the brutal and graceful wilderness. Before we get to the interview, I have a few dates for my calendar and those of my friends which might attract you to local occasions merry and thrilling in Birmingham, Alabama, and beyond. Every week you can see excellent comedy in Birmingham, which is boasting a vibrant and rapidly growing stand-up scene. Goulash Open Mic is going on at Marty's PM every Monday and at Brennan's Irish Pub on Tuesdays. These shows feature a great selection of local comedy talent, including Paige McBride of our program Beers and Broads, and many of their guests like Daniel Sheffield, Chris Ivey, Gio Perez, and the dynamic duo of Michael Rufino and Toby Awe, the hosts of the new Birmingham comedy podcast, The Balmy Boys, which you can find on iTunes and SoundCloud. These shows are free to get into, so long as you enjoy your drinks, tip your tenders, and don't be a heckling piece of fecal fuckery. Wednesday, September 19th, you can see Balcony View at the Nick with Hex from New Zealand and Little Girl. There will be tarot reading and henna by Anna Laura, music at 10 o'clock sharp. Music always starts at the Nick at 10 o'clock p.m. $6 at the door. Thursday, September 20th, Captain Kudzu, following his Arboretum album release at Seasick Records tonight, which I will be attending, will be returning to the Nick with Regulus from Texas, who also have a new recording out, Seismos from Tuscaloosa, and finally Rude Dude and the Creek Freaks from Savannah, Georgia. Should be a really fun night. I've only previewed those other folks, but Captain Kudzu is a fun act that I've seen a few times, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him again and seeing what he has uh, come up with with this new album. Friday, September 21st at Manitou Supply Company at 4000 Third Avenue South, our friend Andrea Dillingham, known by her artist moniker Andrea Reilly, is presenting a collection of jocular emotional drawings called With Two Tales. Drinks are on them. All ages welcome, 6 to 8 p.m. After you enjoy the art, you can head right down the street to the Crestwood Tavern for Top Shelf Burlesque's Disco Show on the 21st night of September. I'll certainly be there supporting the ladies and having a damn good time. Starts at 9 o'clock, on the dot, $10 at the door. That's this week in review. As always, if you have dates, if you have things that you want promoted, if you're a friend of the network, previous guest, or you've never talked to us before, let me know and I will uh, disseminate your information broadly. Expansion is happening rapidly and we're busy processing the I's and the T's so it all makes sense to you and is easily accessible. Finally, if you've been paying close attention, a new page has opened up on the earthhotel.org, which has just gone public. It has been a kind of limited access with a password only so far, but it's fully open called The Inner Lobby. This channel is dedicated to telling the stories from within the Earth Hotel, sourced from listeners and confreres of the network. If you've had dream experiences of wandering through endless corridors, making your way through various rooms and locations, your brushes with the unknown, the mystical, the infinite, here or elsewhere, from within dreams and without, then write or record an account of your time, submit it at theearthhotel.org slash the-inner-lobby. You can hear and read the first two installments of this unfolding open world story there, and by scrolling down to the bottom you will see a submission form. Together, we will flesh out our collective impression of the void, which, from my experience and other people's experience that they've told me, a lot of people visit from time to time in their dreams. Stick around until the end of the show to hear the response from the operator desk, to the first mysterious submission that we received, which aired on the previous episode, number 48, with Top Shelf Burlesque. Our next song is by Calliope from March of last year, her first video posted to YouTube, where you can find other selections of her music. This is called Strange Little Genius, and it serves as our archive material for this episode, and the segue into the interview recorded at her home in Montevallo. Enjoy, and thank you for being with us. 
Strange, little strange, little strange, little strange, little genius, little genius. Strange, little strange, little strange, little strange, little genius, little genius. into it i always lop off the first couple minutes splendid and, uh, so, so we it seems natural getting comfortable hearing our own voices yeah seems right natural by everybody good right natural thing by the holy church of this i'd like to welcome everybody to the second gutenberg revolution <laughs> it's really the third gutenberg revolution but whatever <laughs> i don't know if podcasting or netflix is uh i guess hbo came first so that was that that was the second one where with both of those, we proved that people are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, or rather that television companies gave people credit for, mm. that people will pay attention from the HBO angle. They'll pay attention across 
weeks and weeks of very, very long narratives, more than the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, longer than any kind of epic poem or presentation that's ever been. Mm -hmm. People will pay attention to eight seasons of Game of Thrones and know all the story and get something out of it. And that's amazing. Uh, yeah. It's a lot more than, you know, Johnny Carson thought we could handle as far as attention span goes. Yeah. Because people will binge watch them and, and sit there for hours and, you know, take in stories. Attention is money, essentially. But then the the second one is the podcast thing where people will also spend three or four hours, but only listening to unedited conversation. Mm. And everyone, and that's significant in itself because everyone will listen. Not everyone necessarily can read, and it's not obvious how many people can read, but everyone can listen to things. Mm. It's a lot of uncensored, unmitigated, open form information, communication stuff that's happening. Besides the fact that you can basically do it for free anywhere. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, and that's massive. It's brilliant. I find I find reading to be challenging because when I read my poem, you'll see I like want to flower everything up because I'm just trying to read it like some fairy tale creature all the time because that's how I feel inside. <laughs> but um, when I read things, it takes me 10 minutes to read one page because I really want to extract everything I can from it. I'm trying to paint the picture I'm reading and I'm rereading and my mind's getting distracted while I'm reading. So listening to something in open format, it's like, okay, this is going to be fed to you in a timely fashion or watching it, having mm -hmm. audio and visual there. That's just how I've always been better at learning. Sometimes that's helpful because you do have someone mitigating the form for you because that I have the same way. It's kind of like learning a language. If you there's There's a lot of ways to go about it, but the most successful ways are to... Or I guess the hardest question is to figure out what do I learn first and next and then... Mm you know, how do I integrate it into things? And if you have a language program, for example, that'll take you through, or like learning an instrument, you know, you can learn technique enough to play, and then you can play a couple of songs, and then you start kind of organic. Once you've decided to, hey, I'm going to play this instrument and pursue it into something and, and try to be good at it, then you have to decide, well, I learned scales, but now I have to figure out kind of on my own how to integrate scales into my playing or songwriting, or you can learn from a lot of different things, but you have to go out and do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary. Hmm. Once that you get beyond scary. like baseline knowledge, then there's all these different subcategories of knowledge that you kind of have to crack into and then prioritize. And Absolutely. Which yeah. skills you want to acquire first or next. And how do you know that you did it? Exactly. That's what always got me. It's like, how did I know that I learned? I feel like I learned, oh but I don't gosh. know. That's why I have this thing I call good student syndrome. I'm so freaking good at being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And like someone giving me like an A plus for it. I'm like, yes, I'm worth something in their eyes. They value me as a human. And it's just, it's ridiculous. So I know a lot of amazing people like, you know, Joel and Lauren Jones and, and Laura Thomas, people like that. They go off to school and they like, they really thrive to like learn more. But I'm here. I'm like, how can I stop it? You know, letting other people have expectations of me. Of course, I want to learn more, but I rely on on the, the carrot model <laughs> too much and I, I deny what I really want to do because it's easier to, to do what's expected of me. And for them to be able to go and continue to create so freely working within that structure still, I think it's amazing. I, I feel like Joel would, would say uh, <laughs> that, that that's doing what's expected of him, that he's struggling to, just because we've been talking a lot lately, that like his his problem with that is well, everybody's, you can be told what to do, but nobody knows if you're being told the right thing. Mm. And if that's re necessarily relevant where you are, or if it's going to be relevant 
soon or because uh, he's he's learning from a lot of really renowned and learned people who yeah. have gone out and like done this in the world. Like Fred Frith Truly. has played guitar internationally for decades. And so he's not, you know, been in a classroom for all that time. Mm. You can almost share, li- connect life experiences to your pedagogy. Yeah. He can be told that he's, you know, oh, I've got an idea about this. And, and someone who's been around for a long time could say, oh, that would never work. And that maybe. Maybe that expertise rings true, but then hmm. that guy is going to be obsolete eventually. Yeah. You yeah, know, at some true. point. Everything's objective. And I think to always be questioning is really beautiful and really brilliant way to create. But to to question your, you know, those who are in charge of you or those who, I don't know, who have achieved things that you would like to achieve. Mm-hmm. You still have to question those people. You can't like fall in line behind them every step of the way but you can still of course learn a lot from them i don't know yeah you can't you can't be sure that it's up to date necessarily even if it's wise yeah which is funny well because like we were talking about earlier on the porch everyone has strengths and weaknesses and you can't want to have all their strengths and want to have all their weaknesses because you got a set of your own to work with yeah Hmm. you can't be everything yes which is a hard struggle for some people to realize oh yeah especially in this American society, because we all like love being independent individuals, and especially I think people like you and I, who love to spend so much time alone, and uh, could be happy doing that. But I don't know. Do you have this hunger to like get out there and share things? Yeah, uh, I, I don't have the fear of missing out. People are having fun elsewhere without mm, me. Same. It's more like I wish I could go somewhere where I was personally free to have fun. In my own, I wish I could go somewhere that would trick my own brain into letting me have fun. I guess, which I guess is why radio exists. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the, I guess that's why uh, radio ads exist to make you think, and pop music, I guess, in general, that dan- like dancey pop. Yeah. Uh, that, that really uh, glistening type of pop makes you think that there's a place out there somewhere where everybody's having a really great time and nobody's yeah. too sweaty or <laughs> uh, nobody's stomach hurts and uh, and nobody's in their own head. But that place doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. Because those people are generally pretty boring. Yeah, I think it exists in solitude for me. Man, I get so blissed out on on being alone or out in the middle of the woods by myself. And I don't know. Hmm. The desire to share, but the desire to be like all alone at the same time. It's a funny balance. I think there was like a candid, like some candid footage of Jim Morrison talking to somebody. And he was like, well... You know, if there were if there were a group of people up in the mountains, and they had like a a patron saint or someone to to pay for them and take care of them, and and all they would do is make these records, and eventually they would come down from the mountains and land on the Sunset Strip, and somebody would go, "Who the hell is that cat?" <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be relevant anymore. Mm. Uh, we we don't we ha- we have to work it out. Like, cause that's the thing. Nobody. Music is something that you can get something out of if you're by yourself. You can Mm. play a song for yourself and be satisfied. Yeah. I guess writing would be the most isolated form because you can't, you can't know that it's good until somebody else reads it and, but you're doing it all Mm. alone. Comedy, I guess, is the most immediate one because you have to, maybe painting is is as isolated, Uh, but comedy (laughs) is the, on the other end because you don't know if a joke works until you take it out and people laugh or they don't. That's very true. So it doesn't matter until you tell the joke and it gets a response. So music is somewhere there in the middle where you can do it yourself. And a lot of people think that what they're doing is really great. 
and then you can go and play it for somebody. And some people will care just because it's music. Mm, and yeah. some people will not care just because it's music. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not their particular uh, kind. Yeah, but I think all musicians, musicians know that there's something to learn from anyone that they go and watch. So it's like, I don't know. There's there's joy in like analyzing something without being critical of it. And you truly can learn something from everyone. It's just, it's hard to find the people who are willing to give you a chance sometimes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, we both came from Montevallo, which was... Uh, a rare, a rare cradle of creativity that isn't completely up its own ass. I think mm -hmm. I didn't see a lot of people. I saw a lot of encouragement at Eclipse, mm -hmm. and especially the open mics where people were doing things maybe for the first time. Yeah, and there wasn't this because uh, uh, some people, when when they obviously see some art that is that is proper shit, that mm -hmm. they don't, that's, it wasn't done in good faith, and it's maybe uh, maybe you maybe you didn't put any time into it, and you thought it was going to be great first off, and you didn't. Uh, you're a total beginner and you think that you should be treated differently than like you think you're super special having done something the first time or uh, or whatever. I don't know. I see a lot of good attempts the first time that maybe someone should be given some crit uh, some constructive criticism. Being willing to accept that constructive criticism is another thing, though. Yeah. Well, you got to be willing to. Well, you got to be it. you got to be around people that will actually give it. Hmm. I don't know. I guess I guess what I was saying was there wasn't a lot of uh, ham-fisted like, oh, that was really good kind of things mm. here. We uh, There was a lot of warmth and a lot of encouragement and not a lot of blind uh, hand-waving and, and I don't know. Attention given to anyone who wanted to try a new thing. Yeah. This was a really, speaking of ham-fisted, a very ham-fisted segue. Um, <laughs> so I will have already introduced you and people will know who you are because your name's on the episode, but hi. Hey. Hi, hey. <laughs> we're here now after opening comments. Um, yeah, we're both from Montevallo, a very encouraging uh, artistic community. Uh, a lot of previous listeners will know Joel and uh, Andrew Dillingham and mm. a lot of, you know, a whole laundry list of a bunch of other people that were here when we were both here. You mm -hmm. were still here. I've made the trek back down and it's a bright sunny day outside. And I've enjoyed reminiscing as I drive this way. It's a good drive. Nice place out in the middle of nowhere but just close enough to the city a fine hub in central alabama mm -hmm. yeah how long have you lived here gosh i moved here in fall of 2013 so it'll be five years right about now five years exactly because i came up here to go to school never thought i'd land in alabama but a crazy turn of events uh i feel like landed me in the right place mm -hmm. small a small school where I could get a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention and be exposed to a lot of different art forms and a lot of different people. Like you said, I have very fond memories of coming here when Joel and Andrea and you and, you know, they were all in their last two years of college and I was just starting college. So I saw the, their creativity and what they had taken from this institution and what they had turned it into and how there was passion driving them and not just another fancy piece of paper that says I can make money doing art. They were, they were here to take what they could from it. And, um, and give some back on the way. Yeah, especially. And I've, I've stuck around Montevallo for, for two reasons, because one, I can afford to live alone, which is so important to me at this point in my life. And, uh, two, this community really fostered my creative growth eclipse, especially. And I see all of the wonderful things they're trying to do around here. 
and it's it's kind of made me stay around for a little bit longer and kind of pay my dues to the place that nurtured me creatively. I truly love it here. I don't see myself being here forever, but it will always be a place I come back to with very fond memories because I like so many people who who go to college. For so many people who college is the right thing to do, and, you know, you change a lot in those four years. College is definitely not right for everyone, but it was, I think, very necessary for me. And I don't know, now, now, I'm, now that I'm done with the institutional learning, I feel like I can kind of spread my wings. And there's something about this place know, that has inspired me. It's a kind of a bed of various ingredients. Mm-hmm. There's always different people, different elements and things coming through the university. But you're right, there is a, there is a climate that if the the right things happen, then the weather gets really funky and nice kind of thing. Um, yeah. Metaphorically or, and physically. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's small, but it's, it's still, it's still strange and nurturing enough. Mm-hmm. What did you study at the university? I studied vocal performance. So, so that, that reads to many people as you sang for a long time. What is that? What, what makes that up besides like you just sang a bunch? I sang a lot. Yes. Um, well, my grandmother was an opera singer, and so kind of like rewinding and going back to that good student syndrome, I have always being good when people have expectations of me. My family really encouraged me to to study music in that way. Um, I think I, I knew I wanted to create and write my own songs and perform. I've always known I've loved performing, but I wasn't sure in which way. So the classical training paired with my good student syndrome of doing what I'm supposed to do really helped me make a segue back to the original question. (laughs) You asked, what does vocal performance mean? It means that I sang a lot of arias, which are songs from operas, essentially. Uh, So that they're like showcase kind of showcase songs for the the specific character. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when they have their, their solo moment. So that would be accompanied by a classical a pianist, but what I what I really loved and something that helped me transition into songwriting was art song. Mm-hmm. So it's it's text by one poet, um, set by a composer, and I really loved the German Lieder. So German Lieder are German art songs because they were all about nature and romance. But we think of the Germans as very like logical people, so it was the perfect pairing for me because. I'm an emotional person who's always tried to fit myself into this logical box, and I'm just not that. So that's what art songs seemed like to me. Mm-hmm. I did a piece by a living poet and a living composer, and that just really, really struck my fancy how how you could have, you know, seven stanzas that was through composed, so different from the beginning to the end, and not that repetitive verse, chorus, verse, chorus. So it was a very emotional interpretation of the text was it in form or was it completely formless from beginning to end completely formless the the art songs that i enjoyed most were the ones that didn't abide by the verse chorus you know pop music because a lot of classical music the music that has survived that long is essentially pop music of the era because there was a very strict control on what was released Um, and that's why i think we live in such a special time is because anyone can release anything they want. And it's not just the church hymns and the the highfalutin 
highly produced, expensive productions that have survived. You know, there's there's always been folk singers and people like us, their work just didn't have the means to be preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason, I loved world music and music history classes as well. Something that I really love that fascinates me is vocal pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's essentially the science of how the voice works and studying people like John Cage. Like you, when you have your hands on your instrument, it's so different. When you don't know what this thing, this instrument inside of your throat is doing or what it looks like, it's hard, harder, I think, to do those prepared things with your voice. Like yeah. you know, John Cage's prepared piano and things like that. Which is like placing objects on the strings of the piano or altering how the thing actually works. There's a surprising amount of interesting, like extend. That's called extended technique, but mm-hmm. interesting stuff uh, for the kids listening at home mm-hmm. um, that you can do with your voice in that way. That like we still don't know exactly. Um, Our scientists are so amazed by how like vibrato works. Still, like they don't, mm-hmm. they don't know. <laughs> it's and it's beautiful. I think to to be on the forefront of that. I I wanted to to name drop really quick Meredith Monk. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been a huge influence on me. Um, she's, you know, essentially for those of you listening and who don't know the, uh, John Cage of vocalists. And I just think the world of her links in the description. If you want to uh, learn more. Mm-hmm. Anywho, I just, I love Meredith Monk and I love the idea that you're, you know, something they didn't teach me in school that my, my interest was piqued afterwards because I love vocal pedagogy. Um, it was like your body is your instrument. Mm-hmm. So I think physical movement has so much to do with the way our voices work. You know, it's it's interesting. And I think, you know, something that really worries me. I love technology. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But think of all those robot voices that do not portray emotion and things mm-hmm. like that. I know they're getting better programming those things. But what I'm really getting at is that the raw organic human voice is an instrument in itself whether you're speaking or singing it's everyone's voice is so unique unto them mm-hmm. and the way we carry ourselves is so unique unto unto ourselves and well, what's the difference between like sid vicious not sid vicious uh uh johnny rotten uh, you know screaming anarchy in the uk and uh-huh. you know Pavarotti. they're both Trained in a special kind of way. Mm, like, yeah. <laughs> like Johnny Rotten wasn't a singer and they they intentionally brought him on because he looked good and didn't like couldn't sing. But <laughs> there's a lot of questions about the novice and like, you know, the beginner's mind and that kind of thing. But Pavarotti couldn't have made that sound. He couldn't have gotten yeah. that, that, that texture true. and that thing because he was learned a different way. He wasn't taught on the streets, so to speak. Yeah. So you said Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten from uh, Sex Rotten. Pistols. Okay, okay. Like, ah, ah, you're the crazy. Do you you think know, that whole thing. Johnny Rotten respected Pavarotti. And do you think Pavarotti respected Johnny Rotten? I don't, I don't see any, I don't see any crossover between the any two of them. Any mutual respect. Do you think either of them were curious enough to, to sit down and listen to something that wasn't their style and just ask, what the hell can I learn from this person? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Freddie Mercury was really accepted into a lot of the opera circles oh, after he had established himself, but obviously he could. He had a bunch of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really great story between, I think it was Johnny Rotten. I don't think it was Sid Vicious. One of the Sex Pistols knocked on the door of the, the recording studio where Queen was working on either Not at, Night at the Opera or um, mm-hmm. Day at the Races. These huge albums, and they've, they've been working for months on them. And one of them comes beating on the door. And uh, 
and of course, I'm going to forget the rest of the story. There's this inter- <laughs> great, great interchange between it, but Freddie Mercury basically told him to go fuck off. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think Johnny Rotten had much respect for for other people in general. But mm. I don't think most of those guys had much time for him either. Well, I mean, that's someone was telling me the other day. They were like, it was Terry, it was Terry Lewis. I got to tell him. He was like, you got to increase the hate. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because we're so, cons- I'm, I feel like that good student syndrome going back to always wanting people to do what you know, doing what people expect of me, being Mm well-liked. I feel like I'm too concerned with that to just really explore sometimes. And so he was like, you can't be out there wanting people who love you all the time. You got to increase the hate because for every five people who hate you, there's going to be one person who really, really, (laughs) really loves you. And they will be, you know, they will truly support you. Um, Yeah, that's true. And so it's like (laughs) this weird proportion and, you know, for people – who aren't curious, who who have one way they like everything, you know what I mean? For those people who are never going to give you a chance, like, how do I say this? Let's, let me rewind again. Wanda was telling me the other day, she was like, I would rather have someone who really, really hates one of my songs than someone who feels indifferently towards what I have created. Yeah. Because at least... You want to make someone feel something. That's all. Yeah. That's all it boils down to. I'd much rather piss someone because I do a lot of stuff. You saw Carl Jr. <laughs> we can get back to Carl love Jr. I Carl Jr. Uh, we, I do a lot of stuff that that might be interpreted as confrontational, maybe. Mm. And I would much do one of those sets than do the the nightmare restaurant gigs where no one oh my could care. God. Well, <laughs> well, I guess I guess the worst is uh, not not as bad as being hated. Worse is indifference. Worse than that, the absolute worst is someone preferring something else immediately. Like, can you do that instead? Like, no. Oh my gosh, you are so right. <laughs> I um, speaking of restaurant gigs, like, I'm I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. I'm still figuring out. It's like, how do I appreciate this training I got, and how do I turn it into something that really fulfills me and really, you know, offers other people value? I've been doing the restaurant gigs because, like I said, I've never really known what I wanted to do. I just know I love performing like I don't know if it's if it's the attention or if it's I don't know what it is I've just it's not the attention in way in in ways people would think yeah like it's the attention that it's kind of like the mobility and the not power I guess it is power but not the the ability to command someone's attention that's I guess that word attention is but it's for what you use it for it's it's (laughs) the it's the the motility of of your presence because you can make it flexible when you get attention on it. Yeah. I guess that's what, because uh, motility is like limb strength and flexibility. Like there's flexibility and then there's motility. Yeah. Motility is like you can put yourself in like a yoga pose and hold it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like strength. Like stamina. Movement. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Sense. And maybe that's it is that you can, because I know you're not up there just to like have everyone look at you yeah. and like reflect on you. It's more about what you can do with that attention mm. and that's a it's a power but what, it's a flexible what seed can i plant in there in their mind yeah yeah what you can what you can mold stuff into once you've got that mm, totally uh, so you've been doing restaurant gigs which yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a middle area it gives you some of that but uh think, there is a lot of compromising yeah i was very stubborn when i graduated school i'm like i'm not singing anything any dead guy has ever written again or i'm not gonna sing any music that other people have written but but now that I've, you know, gotten into learning some of the music of the greats, you know, when I say the greats, I mean like 
Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary, just those like peace and love things. Cause that's when I get people's attention, that's what I want to, <laughs> you know, inject into them, I guess. And it's not always my goal, but I feel like when you get up there and you enjoy yourself, they enjoy yourself also because the audience is very empathetic. But also when I start feeling badly about myself and my performance, then I start to trick myself into thinking everyone hates me and is impatient with me as I am with myself. Yeah, especially when you're up there alone. Yeah, which just isn't so. But basically, I started getting into it um, because I was learning cover songs and you know, to have three hours to fill. Like that can be daunting sometimes. But I'm performing and coming all the way full circle back to my early childhood. I've just always loved performing. So if I could, you know, make a couple hundred bucks for doing a three hour gig of the songs that I essentially just play by myself in my house to analyze the music that I love. Right. Um, then, you know, why the hell not? <laughs> and I'm getting better at necessarily reading an audience. It's just I'm learning something. I don't know what the hell it is, but. <laughs> I'd much prefer when someone messages me and they're like, hey, you want to play like 45 minutes or an hour at this show with other musicians? Like, that is the best. Yeah. That's what I really love. But, you know, I'll get out there for, for three hours and play Dancing Monkey while people drink their beers. <laughs> yeah. It's well, the fine. best thing they can do is just smile and nod. Yeah, because put some money in the tip jar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As soon as they don't, then that's a, then that's a problem. I did that for a little bit. And of course, I would pick songs that were too weird and too specific <laughs> and not not things like I tried fucking more than words. I did it. OK. You know, I didn't know it already. Mm -hmm. um, I told multiple people uh, kind of more harshly than I would have liked <laughs> that I don't play Sweet Home Alabama because uh. <laughs> there are 45,000 other people in the state that are playing it at 45,000 other restaurants and you could go there instead. And that was probably why I wasn't <laughs> invited back. <laughs> I did some Bowie stuff instead. But I was like, I'm not going to do it worse than all of them. I could guarantee you that it's worse than 30,000 30, of those people. Oh, man. So chances are, over there, you could find a better I mean, one. That's, that's brilliant. It wasn't. I lost the gig. Um, but, you know. But to feel like you can just say whatever the hell you want. I, oh, I felt like a huge winner that night. To be liberated. But then it's like, there's that, that short-term pleasure of like, hmm, I'm right. I showed them and I was witty too. Yeah. <laughs> there's that. And then there's like, well, damn. Guess, well, guess I can't go back there again. I'm going to feel the heat off of this check just a little while longer before it dissipates. <laughs> um, no, it's fine. Do you remember, you, remember, you know Horses As Is, you, know, you remember Jake, you know Jake Beatty from around here? Yeah. The, the, the Eclipse set, it was a, a bluegrass band that was around for a good bit. They're, they're all Ween fans, and so they would play Baby Bitch uh, whenever someone would uh, request Sweet Home Alabama, or Freebird. <laughs> it was Freebird. Oh, man. You know, Freebird's a damn good song. Like, I hate that, like, I was... <laughs> Go, sorry. Not not with one guy playing one part and you know I've I've seen like two acoustic guitar singers do a really banging job on it. Yeah. But it was short. Oh me, I'm just a total fucking ham with it. I'm like, I'm like doing the solo parts and holding the chords down with some like obnoxious nasal vocal. See that that might be charming. I don't know. It is a good song. Hotel California is a good song. If I'd only heard it the one time on the radio driving home one night in the, the middle novelty. of the night it loses wow. the novelty well i don't know the mix is really good it's it's produced really well and it sounds great i just i'm so dead to it it doesn't <laughs> i have to work my ears into hearing it again yeah as if i was not you know uh, it's like words from uh from movies that you have seen since you were four mm -hmm. like they're never going to sound like normal people talking again because you just hear them 
the rhythms are really deep, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's just me. I was a worm child. I was <laughs> a, a, worm little, child? a little mole child. Do you explain? Uh, I, I lived in a room and that hmm. was it. Okay. <laughs> and they didn't let me out until just recently. This is what I meant. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, so you've been doing, uh, I, how, how long into this recent run of, you don't have an act name for this. You've just been doing like solo songs with Looper and kind of, I hate the one man band thing. It's not one man band. It's, yeah. it's individual multimedia presentation. How long have you been doing I like that? that you, I like that you say that. Thank you. <laughs> Once we got to Tropicalio. How long have I been doing that? Well, honestly, I was so, you know, um, playing a character was always so easy for me because I grew up doing tons of musical theater, you know, reading poems and character voices and things like that. I just loved pretending to be someone else. Uh, it's always been joyful for me. And I've, I haven't created like an act name. But anyways, I was so good at playing other people's characters that I was afraid to share myself. And all the things I'd created. And I've I've always written things. I've always gotten tunes or choruses or verses or things like that stuck in my head for years and years and years. But I was afraid to, like, put the work in to develop the idea fully. So in the fall of 2015 is when I, like, shared my first original song ever at Eclipse. And I didn't play any instruments. And Lauren Jones gave me her little, like... I don't even know what kind of drum it was. I like held it under my arm and it was like kind of awkward to use like my left hand to, to hit the, the drum and the right one to play freely. <laughs> but it was called Syncopation Psycho Nation. <laughs> and um, it was just this catchy little, um, and I was so scared and I was so embarrassed. And I had never gotten stage fright in my life until I was going to share my first piece of music and it wasn't going to be perfect because I didn't play an instrument. It wasn't going to be articulated the way I wanted it to be. And so 2015 was the first time I, I shared any original music at all. And I've just been going under, you know, by Calliope Pettis, whether I'm most recently and funly, I guess, if that's a word, I make up words all the time. Um, at Art Bar, I had uh, James Mullis and Adrian Marmalejo play with me. And whenever, that was the first time I'd had, like, other than improvisations people play with me so i could stand on my head and sing and that was great yeah. it was so much fun um but it's not a turn of phrase folks that's a that's, that's real literal <laughs> and then you know playing restaurant gigs and playing covers and playing songs i had written i've written a couple character pieces and i would you know one man banding honestly bouncing off of that i would love to write a one woman show and figure out because i'm very theatrical and i like to move and i like to dance and the loop pedal, which I only got in about a year and a half ago, that helps me be able to make my own accompaniment and then dance around like a whimsical weirdo behind it. That's why I really love the loop pedal. And I've been I've been so afraid of not afraid, but intimidated by technology. I only just bought myself a laptop. Well, you made it all the way through school without a laptop? <laughs> yeah. I went Holy shit. to the um I just went to the library and did everything. I just didn't didn't want one. I hate, I hated social media. I still kind of hate social media, but I know, no, I'm learning how to utilize it as a necessary evil. Technology, it was very intimidating. Got the loop pedal, realized how great it is for me to be able to do my own thing. And I'd love to invest in a loop pedal that has more features and more effects. Cause this one is, it's the best for someone like me who only knows how to use Google and Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you can it's one volume knob and one button. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, whoa, how do you do that? And I'm like, really? <laughs> really, anybody can do this. 
but anyways, honestly haven't started adding percussion to the songs I play or looping certain melodic tracks and singing along to them until this year, really, effectively. In February, I played what was formerly known as Blasted Screen Prints down in Panama City. I think Mm. it's Moon Lodge Cafe now. But it's just a really great space that's open to singer-songwriters as well as experimental musicians, as well as hardcore musicians and, and everything like that. Links in the description. Yes. That was my first gig playing for an hour and a half or more. And as I have integrated more things, I've just gotten better at using a loop pedal. I did write what one of my favorite things to do when I first got the loop pedal was uh, breaking out my shell Silverstein. Oh, yeah. And creating some like background ambient sound things to like read shell Silverstein's poems along oh. to and telling stories. And that was really fun. That might have to be the live reading right there. Oh, man, that that would actually that would be splendid. Well, you already heard that. So you'll find you'll, you'll know by this point if that actually happened <laughs> uh, that way that we planned it. And so you're, uh, we're, we're kind of doing two different versions of the same thing. Tell me a little bit more about your character-driven kind of stuff. Character-driven stuff. It's kind of personality, more like personality kind of things. Yeah. Like, I'm going to express this emotion differently. This, this is, I'm going to answer the question the long way, because I make everything more complicated and add more details than I need to. <laughs> so, <it's>, Perfect. <laughs> uh, when I was back in school, you know, I loved, I loved, studying classical voice. It's amazing that the human voice can power over a, you know, 70-piece orchestra if nurtured the right way. I don't really care to do that, but I do love, you know, that that perfect resonance and finding that sweet spot in your voice. That's like that perfect pear-shaped tone that sits in the center, all that, you know. It's great. And so when I was there, I was indoctrinated with this idea that like, oh, this is your natural voice. Like you must sing in this perfectly balanced based all the time and um you know so many people they don't sing with their natural voices or you know (laughs) my intention when i said that was to switch into character voices there's just so many different and beautiful ways to use a voice sorry the sirens are going by so i had to (laughs) jump off to that tangent for four years i had this idea that oh, it's not good if you're not singing with your natural voice. Um, And so I was, once again, afraid to use characters or explore different emotions and parts of myself with a different character. And doing characters in school and things like that, it was always fine and dandy to add a character. But when I switched to opera the past four years of study... That muscle kind of... Yeah, it was like, this is wrong. And then I started really like being overly critical of people like, oh, they don't sing with their natural voice, you know. (laughs) And then I realized, I think Meredith Monk in the past, you know, the past year, I've really gotten into her and started wanting to emulate her. Also, some of the recitals I saw at Montevallo exposed me to these ideas. The whole idea of this one woman show forming and things like that have really opened me back up to the idea of doing that, of doing character voices. Here's a perfect example. The first time I heard Early James and the latest, I hated him. I was like, that guy, I don't know, I can't even emulate his voice, but it was just like, I was like, why does everyone love him? Like, his voice is like, he's not even singing with his natural voice. Uh, I think this was actually at Eclipse. Mm-hmm. I don't even think he was and the latest at that point. I was oddly, like, repulsed by this character voice because I had this 
ingrained idea of what was right because once again, good student. Oh, this is what I'm told to think. I'm going to think this. And then I started hanging out in Birmingham the past, the past year, going to more live shows, learning from studying people who just figured out how to do it on their own. And it brought back around this appreciation of the, the character voice. So, so now you love early James and the latest. I love okay. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, I love them now. Just clearing that up. Um, because I have, you know, started appreciating that, which I don't understand at first and asking more questions and, you know, thinking about it differently, you know, bringing it back to Shel Silverstein. He's a creepy dude. Have you, have you seen pictures of him? Like, it's like, oh, this is a children's book. I'm going to read some cutesy poems. And then you like turn to the back cover and it's like this bald guy. Bald bearded communist. <laughs> um, and there's like some weird, there's one of his books where there's a, a foreshortened photo of him. So it's like his foot's really big and like gross <laughs> bottom of a foot. And you like yeah. see his face. He was a playboy cartoonist yeah. before he was a, you know, children's poet. And yeah, he's got a, he's got a really great poem about uh, a, a smoke off in the late sixties, mm -hmm. uh, a, a baseball stadium full of people. Uh, I'll do that as a bonus reading at the end. Oh, if you stick around till the very end, I'll read that one. Oh, stoked, That's stoked great. about it. I think it. it's just called the smoke off. Um, anyway. His character voice. He actually does some music, yeah. too, from time to time. A lot of people didn't didn't know that, but he's got a really gruff character voice. And I just, I love it. And uh, a song that I've written on ukulele, I, I was so opposed to getting a ukulele because it's like, oh, that's <laughs> just for happy songs. I'm too good at writing happy songs anyways. Like, fuck that instrument. <laughs> but I finally got one. They're um, all in minor. <laughs> exactly. So getting an instrument and finding the <laughs> character voice. Right accepting the character voice, accepting this happy instrument and wanting to turn it dark all happened like in January, February when all this, when, when I feel like this year is me really learning about my creativity because I'm done doing what people have expected of me. I'm going to do the music I want to do, even if it's a cover song that I want to do because I'm not learning Sweet Home Alabama or Country Roads. <laughs> I think a one woman show would be really great because that, I mean, you're, you were already kind of doing moments of like i could tell song to song at tropicalio you were doing um you heard their song about a pen that was inspired directly by shell silverstein yeah that would very i don't know it would very much lend itself to you the loop pedal and and just the the mannerisms and everything it would you would e easily hold a lot of different topics mm. centered around your own presentation of your you got i guess you got a strong enough personality to hold a lot of different topics together Thanks. and it would <laughs> it would present itself well isolated just you making the music for it and having all that yeah. Gives you a lot of space to play in. Yeah, I can do handstands and I don't need a band. But... It's your handstand, no band plan. <laughs> handstand, no band plan. Speaking of handstand, band plan, band stands at the Nick, mm -hmm. that event and that space and inviting people that I didn't know up on stage to improvise with me, that is such, wow, that's something that's really shaped me. Mm -hmm. It's like I have a hard time doing collaborations with people because I lend a lot of my creative, I'm an overachiever. So I like give more attention and thought to things than I need to. And, and doing projects with other people specifically and exclusively has posed a lot of difficulties mm -hmm. just in coordination, really. But I love improvising with people. Like if I see someone and I see they're doing something that I'm learning from on stage because I'm really watching and really listening, then it's like, hey, do you want to really watch and really listen together and make something like weird in the moment? And I think James and Adrian are a huge part of 
that for me because they saw me perform once at the Nick and they're like, hey, can we get up on stage with you? And I'm like, really? Like, I admire you guys so much for what you're what you're capable of. And you want to you want to lend your capabilities and your expertise to me and huge factor in exploration. Yeah. Go check out those uh, that Monday night open hoopla jam stand on you get in for free if you're playing so so bring your spoons folks (laughs) we need 18 spoon players next week oh for a piece that i'm working on so this is (laughs) you must be clairvoyant because spoons has popped up playing spoons has popped up for me like 10 times in the past freaking months nice and i learned how to do like one trick with them let's make it happen folks oh my gosh this monday whatever the next monday is what the hell is it with me and spoons these days Mm. this is Hmm. Maybe you're being called to eat some cereal. Maybe. <laughs> it's going to be 18 spoon players around you playing spoons and you're just going to eat a bowl of cereal and then that's the show. What do I need to call that act? Because I think as I develop this one woman show, I I love the idea of acts. Um, like, you you know, you have, you have so many acts. I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't know what, how much or little to say about these acts or these different characters that you portray. Yeah. Carl, Carl Jr., my client, is not allowed to speak, I don't know. And Joel's Joel Nobody. Mm-hmm. I love that that character. I learned so much from listening to your podcast with him. But all these projects that he has and that he's able to do, I haven't ever seen myself like as able to do that. And what I love, you know, bouncing back to an idea we expressed earlier, playing forty five minute to an hour long sets with like other people that you really love and appreciate, being there to share and to listen and to learn to each other. I love events like that where it's just like Hey, I love what you do. You love what I do. Like, let's do something in the moment together. Yeah. Um, that's, that's that's one of the things that I would love to put on more or just see more of. It's like, yeah. here are three acts that work well together. They're not identical or among the same kind of thing, but they all balance. And then at the end, everyone plays at the same time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, POTUS is a huge, huge influencer in that type of way of thinking about music. Another great Birmingham band. People of the internal sunshine. Um, it's Terry Lewis you mentioned. They're kind of the, uh, just in the group aspect, they're kind of the funkadelic of oh Birmingham. They're amazing. And it's, it's always him and his wife, same lyrics, same basic, you know, tune, whatever she can, you know, do on the synthesizers. And then they have rotating out bassists, guitarists, drummers. And it's just amazing because it's always, it's always the same songs and a very different like sound or feel, but recognizable enough and it's just it's always new when you see them i love them so much i got to sing with them when they were over at interstellar brewing company not too long ago that's one of the small the small places here that is not too far of a trek to the city it's like it's around it's around the airport exit in clara yeah in alabaster you just heard from them uh you if you listen to the minisode with the minisode t with the with joel nelson's pataphysical freakout tour you heard footage from Interstellar. Yeah. Callback. <laughs> but I've heard everyone who steps off of stage with Terry, they're like, he's so amazing because he lets you bring your strength to the table and he invites you. He's not, he doesn't control anything. He's just so inviting. And so many people, I feel like, you know, the, the bane of all of our creative existence, we get used to it being one way all the time. Mm-hmm. And people start to freak out when their creation is suddenly in the hands of another group of people. 
Man, I went to a jam and they entirely changed the entire feel of my song. It didn't feel like they were listening at all. Mm -hmm. But like I had this freak out moment in the middle of the performance. And I'm like, Calliope, relax into it. You got the words. You don't need the the rhythm or the melody (laughs) that you're always used to playing with. And just to to relax into that is is a hard freaking thing to do because, I don't know, I think improvisation and collaboration are so beautiful because it reminds you that that things are always changing, and that's life. And you think you can't ever think it's going to be one way, because it's not. <laughs> life is an improvisation. <laughs> so from moment to moment, we're always making decisions. And philosophical tangent there. Everything they are welcome. Into it. <laughs> They're welcome here. Um, so, what are you looking to do? Uh, do you have Do you have things coming up? Do you have places where people can see you besides the next yes. on Mondays? September is just a banging month for me. I'm really excited for it traveling to florida i've got five gigs scheduled down there between fort walton and panama city over the time of like a week and a half so it's like day on day off i like to explore and go listen to other musicians ask questions get to broaden my network as a i describe myself as an introvert with really good extroversion skills Mm -hmm. thanks dad um (laughs) You know, just doing doing a lot of that from September 7th through the 16th. And then I'll be coming back up to Birmingham or something that next weekend. <laughs> it'll be in the it'll be in the description. Yeah. We'll read all the dates below. There's something below. here and something there. But you're playing at Fork and Spoon for, for one thing. Yes. I'm really excited about that. That can be the, the Calliope Pettis that stands on her head and, and sings. And I do believe that Dwayne is going to be playing drums coordinated with that with him last time he, he came to one of my restaurant gigs because you know crazy connection small world shit his wife is very very best friends with my eldest sister so it's funny because i'll go to dinner with hope and todd my sister and ruth and wayne and they'll be like you know the three of them are like ah, we don't understand what, what calliope and wayne are doing but like it's you know, that, that's fine. They appreciate what they do. So there's been mention of that. So I, I hope that once I get down there, I'll just reach out to these creative people who are there and see people. Hey, I respect what you do. You want to get up on stage with me <laughs> so I can do a handstand and not loop. There are a bunch of good people we can put you in touch with yeah. down in that area. And I'm sure you'll find your own connections with them. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to keep me updated on the things that you've got coming up. Yeah. Pretty soon. And you would have already heard this. We're going to do the art analysis video thing you're going to take us through how you do one of your songs and do a a live performance kind of on video once we get the video stuff up in october Uh, and you express some express some interest in hosting a small uh ritual uh, act the one that i did at fork and spoon months ago the aphroditus ritual act might be coming to montevallo and then to birmingham because i think i just found places to host those things so look out for those in the future Uh, come to the nick on monday nights and once we get this big, long inner lobby bonus stream thing going up, I would like to have you back and do yeah. a, a longer. We've been here for an hour, but I would like to sit down for a couple hours and really grind things out because we have plenty to talk about. We didn't get into any Montebello Truly. history or <laughs> we barely scratched the surface on most of these first ones. But <laughs> oh, that's what the it's joys for. of philosophical and creative tangents. <laughs> yeah. And just appreciating. I feel like we've done a lot of appreciating of the people who have influenced us. Yeah. And that's, you know, you can't create something beautiful unless you can appreciate what others have created whether or not you understand it yeah we we both we both spent a lot of formative time you and in, in classical training and me and uh Music banging my head classes. up against the wall um 
Oh, that was only like a year. I was, <laughs> I was referring to all the days playing shitty rock and roll music in my in my basement. I very vividly remember meeting you for the first time. Uh oh. It, it was my it was my freshman year, and we were on the downstairs floor. The only time I've ever been on the downstairs floor of the playhouse. And yeah. it was some costume party. It was October of 2013. Holy shit. No, I, I, playing downstairs? I, remember, I vividly remember meeting you in conversation. I don't know if I just missed your performance. Okay, I probably wasn't. You if I was me, talking to anyone, I probably wasn't playing that night. Yeah, you told me you were dressed as someone that I didn't know. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and I was like, cool. Oh, yeah, I went as Candy Darling. That was that was a thing. That was fun. Yeah, that was a very, very long time ago now. <laughs> Um, I don't remember most of my life at that point. Yeah, but I'm a little nugget of Montevallo history. That Yeah, apparently the Playhouse is making a resurgence. Um, there's stuff happening in Montevallo that I've gotten word of firsthand, and you may be able to come up and see some weird ancient ritual magic happen mm. soon. But we'll keep everyone updated on your exploits, and we'll have you back pretty shortly. Yeah. Wow. Time flies when you're having fun. I know. I'm. I'm. Get, this is the last episode that I do in this format before we get to like three or four hour conversations with people. Yeah. So we're going to have to have you back to do the full thing. Absolutely. I would love that. Well, um, whatever happens next, what's coming up? You're going to hear news and personal stories from me. And then some of the bar sticker music that we've got on this episode. Mm, love those. Yeah. Thanks. Cal. I hope you.
So for my personal stories this week, uh, I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper to the Freddie Mercury bit that I referenced with Calliope. I heard that story a long time ago, and as I've forgotten quite a bit of my life, I had to go back into it. So here's an excerpt. You'll hear a few voices here, and I'll point out who they are. Uh, one of them is the drummer, uh, Roger Taylor. One of them is uh, a queen, Rhodey. I'm not sure who is currently narrating, and then you'll hear Freddie speak. I don't own this content. I can't source the documentary from which this is from, so this is of the public interest under fair use. Punk happened in the late 70s, which made the standard rock group seem passe. The punk stuff, as opposed to what Queen did, they were coming from two different points of view. You know, it was anarchy and, and one side and monarchy and the other. One of the things that he said to me was that his mission in life was to bring ballet to the masses. Ooh. I love posing. That's for the press. Well, this is Wessex Studios, where a lot of News of the World was done. We were recording here, and uh, the Sex Pistols were in at the same time. Well, we met the Sex Pistols in Wessex Studios. And uh, I thought it was fascinating. One day uh, we were in the control room and Fred was sat at the desk. And um, suddenly we heard this voice and it was Sid Vicious who'd come in and he was clearly the worse for wear. Sid came in and Sid was a moron, you know, he was <laughs> an idiot. And he called into the room, have you succeeded in bringing ballet to the masses yet? I called Sid Vicious and I called him Simon Ferocious or something, and he didn't like it at all. I said, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Fred went up and took him by the lapels and pushed him out the door. He hated the fact that I could even speak like that. Right. Then, um, so we went home. I think we survived that test. <laughs> and I'll, I'll put the link to this, uh, I'll put the link to this video. Uh, Freddie has this great scowl at the end. It's wonderful. Yeah, I knew that story just a little bit. Uh, but by revisiting it, yeah, I think that might be from the, the Queen documentary, Days of Our Lives. But I will post that uh, forthwith. All the links, as usual, can be found in the description. Um, as far as personal stories for this one, I, I it, you know, it's very hard to, to go back and, and specifically, like, sort through your memory until we have uh, the, the access to extended memory with our phones or with AI or something, which, if you've listened to the Elon Musk, uh, I know everybody posted e uh, Elon Musk memes following the Joe Rogan podcast, but I don't think anybody listened to it because the first 45 minutes are fucking terrifying. Um, and he, he was talking about, because uh, of course, Rogan got in with, uh, start, started in with AI questions and because he's interested in that. And he really did a great job on the interview, uh, probing all the necessary, you could tell that he had all these questions that he's been dying to ask for a long time uh, for some, uh, ask of someone that really knows what kind of has a, has an inner look at it. But I had a, a momentary freakout last night on the way home listening to it. He said that, that Neuralink, which is an area that he is putting money into, he's got a company called Neuralink, uh, but he said Neuralink is an existential solution to the bandwidth problem. And I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and, and Rogan said, can you say anything more about that? And he said, we'll have something interesting to announce in the next few months that is orders of magnitude better than anything else, probably better than anyone thinks is possible right now. And he described it essentially that that the cortex uh, uh our frontal cortex 
is in a symbiotic relationship with the limbic system, the emotional feedback system. And, and most of the time we're trying to feed that system. That's what the, a large amount of the, the processing power of the cortex is going toward is trying to satisfy those, those needs. That's like, there's a reason that our emotional needs tie into our survival needs. They're, uh, sometimes in a counterintuitive way, but that's because we've, we're all twisty, but, uh, but largely the cortex is going to serve the function and the needs of the limbic system. And essentially, as far as I understood it, what he was saying was that AI would, would function linked in uh, to further that symbiosis, to, to enhance the quality of that symbiotic relationship so that the, cogn the, the cortex, the cognitive function that we have, the cognitive processing that we have isn't, isn't so dependent on serving the needs of the limbic system, that it enhances the cortex uh, so that AI is not de facto uh, separated from the cortex, from ourselves. Uh, so, for example, you can you can have an Instagram account, and he said that we, we're, we're already cyborgs, with, and, and of course, like we're already cyborgs with the phones. They're just not attached to us, but we have this this intense uh, uh, and increasing an increasingly complex relationship with the technology that we carry around with us all the time. So you can have an Instagram account that is an extension of yourself and your personality and in many ways a manipulation of those things. But it, uh, and of course that's largely to serve the limbic system as well. Uh, but that's, that's a step removed. You, you clearly, uh, at least you, you'd think people clearly have a distinction between who they are and what that Instagram account says. Um, and that's, of course, one of the dangers. Instagram is probably a really bad example because it's notoriously manipulative of our perceptions of ourselves and other people. Uh, keep your selfies and your, uh, your good time pictures and, uh, and your manipulative uh, projections of yourself off of Instagram if you can, uh, because if, you, if other people see manipulated projections of how much fun and how beautiful you are, uh, it makes people sad because that's not truly who you are. You're manipulating yourself and other people when you do that. Um, but, but essentially the AI would be, as far as he, he said and can surmise best case scenario, it would serve as a, as a third layer that is tied into us in a way that it's not me and the AI functioning. It's just, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's all considered me. And I think what that means is that, and, and the way he explained it, and, and this is about 30, 35 minutes into the interview, if you want to go, I, I recommend listening to the whole thing because he explains it much better than I could, but, and he knows more about it than I would, but anyhow, it, it, it's, he guessed that best case scenario in the next several months, we would see a vast improvement in the cognitive abilities of human beings if we choose to involve ourselves with this. So anyhow, uh, before, so without, without that being tied in, uh, you know, I can't, I can't compute in my head how long, how many seconds I've been sitting here talking and I can't search back through my memory, like a filing cabinet, uh, like you would with your phone, with your, with your camera roll. Uh, I can't search back through my memories and say, all right, how many, I've got 50 eclipse experiences and three of them would make good stories and the rest of them are just personal things. Um, I've, I've generally skipped this part of the podcast when it's come up uh, to much, much to my dismay, because 
uh, I'm, I'm trying to follow the instructions that the die and the coin tell me to do as a uh, as a ritual act to the creative force. But usually, I skip these personal stories because I I don't uh, I don't like telling stories necessarily about myself, and it's hard to concisely do that as you're witnessing play out in real time here. But most of my eclipse experiences were full of joy. Uh, as Calliope said in the interview, it, it was such a warm, nurturing place for creativity in that you could do whatever you wanted to do and someone would have an opinion on it that was most likely constructive. Um, there, there was a lot of, because there's a difference to me between positive uh, and constructive criticism and the, you know, oh, good gig, man. You know, it's like, oh, that was, that was cool. Uh, there's there's a quality to it. So generally, it, I would do, you know, I had, I had many, many open nights, uh, apart from the open mic nights, where I could book a show on a Thursday or Friday or a Monday or Tuesday at Eclipse and play, you know, I did, I did opera sets with props and, uh, and movement and, and, and people on stage with me working out the hypnocracy material that is still yet to surface. Um, I, I did, I, I mean, I perfected, I, it helped me perfect my style to the point where I understood what I was doing. It's not perfect, but it helped me cultivate an understanding of what I was doing. And I think that kind of artistic space is incredibly important, uh, be, just because of the independence and the, the openness that it offered. There was never a cover. There was never, ever a cover at Eclipse. And a lot of people came, they packed out pretty frequently because people didn't have to pay. And the bar did gangbusters, uh, and I think the cut for the band was 35% for the hour before, during, and after you play, uh, split between the bands. So if I played on a three bill, I could make 40 or $50 on a night in a small town um, with, with two other bands, you know. Uh, you would really have to pack out the nick to make that money with on a four bill, for example because people are already spending $6 and then drinking at the bar, which is not a criticism. Uh, I don't run a venue, and I have no fiscal responsibility toward keeping a venue open, so I really don't know shit. But that really helped the audience, and it really helped that I got paid to do those shows. Um, and it's not about getting paid, but... See, that's the thing. It's not... None of... Musicians griping about the money, it's not about, you know, getting paid to be on stage it's about getting paid for all the things that lead up to be on stage you know the the time and effort um even if you don't want to value that intrinsically if you want musicians to exist in any way that you can see them and they can produce things uh especially today when it, the, it's very hard to pay for yourself to live especially if you're splitting your time up between many different things and you're being creative most of the time uh, you you have to account for yourself in the world, and if you want musicians to exist, they have to be supported in some way, which is part of the reason I'm doing the bar sticker thing. It's part of the reason I'm doing a lot of the things that I'm doing, and that's that's why the mission statement or the larger goal of the Earth Hotel is to bring is to bring the art to people, and then use it because anybody can do that, but. Do it in a unique way that draws people in, and I've got all I've all I've got all my creative, you know, artistic access to grind with this. But uh, if you can, 
if you can optimize how art makes money without corrupting the art, and then consolidate that with a tight business model that can reinvest the profits of that amongst the musicians, the artists, and back into itself. So someone who's really smart with money that's not me, who will eventually be working with uh, in this with me, uh, my, my goal is to have that strong conservative mind put into practice financial uh, mechanisms that can pay the artists what they are, not what they're worth, because that's very, very difficult to do unless you're a very large business. I would like to pay them what they're worth, but um, pay them enough to get to survive and make their art um, as patrons, you know, as a, as a patron to the art, and then have them make a profit enough to survive and then have, I guess, whatever's left, roll off some of it and then invest it intelligently, strategically. And then use, and of course, investors are involved and, and other, other aspects are involved. There are other ways to make money besides skimming off the top of the artist because there's most likely going to be very, very little of that. More of it is, is the collective body of work that is produced under the umbrella of this, of this function. You know, if, if you know, as we bring other programs on that I'm not in the room recording or producing, there's going to be no interference as to what they are doing. But the way that we handle everything as an organization will be top down so that I'll never tell anybody what to say, but we're all under the same understanding from the, from the beginning that, um, that part of this is going to be going towards doing that thing that rich people do where you make money into more money and then use the profits from that to invest back into the musicians, invest into things like stocks and Bitcoin and mutual funds so that there's there's money coming from the, the money that the artists make and they can survive and they can flourish and thrive and then build that into something that can deliver to the community. You know, I would, I would love to have several thousand dollars to throw around at a project, uh, at a strategic project in town, you know, building bus shelters or, uh, you know, bus stop shelters or, you know, re rebuilding the goddamn take a book, leave a book library that someone destroyed in front of Wally's market in Southside, some rat headed monster, fucking troglodyte, uh, imbecile went and, and trashed the, the book stand, the, the public sidewalk library outside of Wally's, uh, and we will find you and we will understand you. But anyhow, those are my scattered thoughts and recollections about Eclipse that involve actually no personal stories. Um, uh, mainly my stories are just, I played this song with this person and I really enjoyed it and I got something out of it and they got something out of it, but not a lot of them are stories that, uh, uh, and I don't want to selectively pick from those because they're not really prioritizable. They're all, they're all my, my special children my memory children. But yeah, most of those memories are not fun stories that haven't been told on a podcast or would be interesting to sit here and listen to me ramble about. So that concludes the, uh, the Freddy V vicious recap and, uh, my eclipse reminiscence and my straying and, uh, and spindly thoughts on art 
and shite. So we are moving on. As we've done recently, this episode features a selection from a local bar. Each week, I make my way to a drinkery and pick out the first band sticker that I see. Outside of Dave's pub recently, I found John E. Funk and the Skunks, a group from Boston who supply the Stanky Jams. You can find them in the description. Reach out if you like and thank them for being so accommodating. This is their tune, Give It Up, from the EP of the same name, released in December of last year. Why don't you put that stack of money in my hand? I said, give it up, give me all you can. About to roam around playing with my band. Got to find a place for me and my girlfriend. Off to Detroit, Alabama, and San Fran. The cops are coming, so catch me if you can Maybe Utah, Tallahassee, or Japan Anyway, we're getting out, we're getting out anyway we
The Smoke Off by Shel Silverstein, as promised. Hide your kids. This is not from A Light in the Attic. It's from Hey, You Got a Light in the Attic. Just kidding. In the laid-back California town of sunny San Rafael lived a girl named Pearly Sweetcake. You probably knew her well. She'd been stoned 15 of her 18 years, and the story was widely told that she could smoke them faster than anyone could roll. Her legend finally reached New York, that Grove Street walk-up flat, where dwelt the Calistaga kid, a beatnik from the past. With, with long brown lightning fingers, he takes a cultured toke and says, Hey, hell, I can roll them faster, Jim, than any chick can smoke. So a note gets sent to San Rafael for the championship of the world. The kid demands a smoke-off. Well, bring him on, says Pearl. I'll grind his fingers off his hands. I'll roll till he drops, says Calistog. I'll smoke that twist till she blows up and pops. So they rent out Yankee Stadium, and the word is quickly spread. Come one, come all, who walk or crawl. Price, just two lids ahead. And from every town and hamlet, over land and sea, they speed. The world's greatest dopers with the world's greatest weed. Hashishes from Morocco, hemp smokers from Peru, and the shamnicks from Bagoon who puff the deadly pugaroo, and those who call it light of life, and those who call it boo. See the dealers and their ladies wearing turquoise, lace, and leather. See the narcos and the closet smokers puffing all together. From the teenies who smoke legal, to the ones who've done some time, to the old man who smoked reefer back before it was a crime. And that grand old house that Ruth built is filled up with the smoke and cries of 50,000 screaming heads all stoned out of their minds, and they play the national anthem, and the crowd lets out a roar as the spotlight hits the kid in pearl ready for their smoking war. At a table piled up high with grass as high as a mountain peak, just tops and buds of the rarest flowers, not one stem, branch, or seed. Maui Wowie, Panama red and Acapulco gold. Key from East Afghanistan and rare Alaskan cold. Sticks from Thailand, ganja from the islands, and Bangkok's blooming best, and some of that wet imported shit that capsized off Key West. Aloxacan tops and Kenya bang and Riviera fleurs, and that rare Manhattan silver that grows down in the New York sewers. And there's bubbling ice cold lemonade and sweet grapes by the bunches, and there's Hershey's bars and Oreos, in case anybody gets the munchies. And the Calistaga kid, he sneers, and pearly, she just grins. And the drums roll low, and the crowd yells, Go! And the world's first smoke-off begins. Kid flicks his magic fingers once, and zap that first joint's rolled. Pearl takes one drag with her mighty lungs, and whoosh, that roach is cold. Then the kid, he rolls his super bomb that paralyzes a moose, and pearly takes one super hit, slurp, that bomb diffused. And he throws three in just ten seconds, and she smokes him in nine, and everybody sits back and says, this might just take some time. See the blur of flying fingers, see the red coal burning bright, as the night turns into morning, and the morning fades to night, and the autumn turns to winter, and a whole damn year is gone. But the two still sit on that roach-filled stage, smoking and rolling on. With trembling hands, he rolls his jays with fingers blue and stiff, and she coughs and stares with bloodshot gaze and puffs through blistered lips, and as she reaches out her hand for another stick of gold, the kid, he gasps, God damn it, bitch, there's nothing left to roll. Nothing left to roll, screams Pearl. Is this some twisted joke? I didn't come here to fuck around, man. I came here to smoke. And she reaches across the table and grabs his bony sleeves, and she crumbles the body between her hands like dried and brittle leaves, flicking out his teeth and bones like useless stems and seeds. And then she rolls him in a zigzag and lights him like a roach. And the fastest man with the fastest hands goes up in a puff of smoke. In the laid-back California town of sunny San Rafael, 
lives a girl named Pearly Sweetcake. You probably know her well. She's been stoned 21 of her 24 years, and the story's widely told how she can still smoke them faster than anyone can roll. While off in New York City on a street that has no name, there's the hands of the Calistoga Kid in the Viper Hall of Fame. And underneath his fingers, there's a little golden scroll that says, Beware of being the roller when there's nothing left to roll. From the desk of the operator, Night Watch, year 73, September 14. The intercom atop the marble alerted me to a situation in an obscure sector of the hotel, uncharted currently and hitherto unknown to the staff. I answered and captured only a fragment to record. After the call ended, I notified collections and we searched a few of the nearest accessible staircases. Walked up four or five different directions and spread out amongst ourselves. Nothing through the walls, all door frames encountered were intact and lighting is holding up okay. We figured this was related somehow with the new talk of recording phone calls in-house. I asked Tech if they had picked up the recorders we had left on 447F and none were recovered. Our best option, according to inner discourse with MD, is to collect smaller exchanges and distribute more regularly. The task of cutting up responsibilities is nigh, I suppose. No man is a desk or a sofa. Workplace casualties are expected, but nothing permanent. The letter that came on the 15th makes a bit more sense in context, but we haven't seen inhabitants in several months. We hear and see the evidence of people moving through, but actual interaction has been desolate. For the record, JC. 91473.